Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. This is Sarah Story. I'm the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today we're recording live from the Mississippi Book Festival in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. And we're joined by Juhei Kim, and we're talking about her book, Beast of a Little Land. Welcome, Juhei. Hi, thank you for inviting me, Sarah. So glad that you're here. (laughs) Uh, So is this your first time to this book festival? Yes, and I am so impressed by everything about Jackson and the festival. Well, we like hearing that. (laughs) Thank you. When did you get to town? Uh, Last night. Oh, good. So you got to enjoy some of the festivities? Uh, Absolutely. And I am mesmerized by the atmosphere here. It really was such a beautiful sunset last night and reminded me of all the great Southern literature that I grew up loving. Oh, yeah, that's so true. Um, What what are some of your favorite uh, Southern writers? Um, My favorite has to still be William Faulkner. Um, I uh, write in a different style, but I think that his brand of um, warmth and deep concern for humanity is still so inspiring to me. Yeah, you can definitely see that in this book. So let's let's hear a little bit about uh, this book. How did it come about? What What is it about? Beast of a Little Land. Beasts of a Little Land is an epic novel of love, war, and redemption set against the backdrop of the Korean independence movement. And I was inspired from a very personal place by my maternal grandfather, who was uh, involved in the Korean independence movement about a century ago. And at the time, I wasn't planning on writing a novel when I was called to do this. I was in my late 20s, living in New York and uh, struggling as an artist, trying to gain my sea legs. And I had little by little bit gained a little bit of courage in um, allowing myself to write Uh, I had worked before in book publishing as an editorial assistant, and uh, I was finally giving myself permission to also think of myself as a writer and not just an editor. And I had recently begun working with a literary agent. I um, had written one short story and sent it to an, an agent I knew from working in publishing, and she asked me to keep writing more and more short stories. So over a course of the year, this was 2015, I ended up writing for her 13 short stories just to convince her to take me on as a client. At the end of that, she said, fine, clearly you're talented. I agree to represent you. And this was the greatest moment of my life other than um, the moment when I was accepted to college. And I said to her, great. Well, to be honest, I don't want to embarrass you, but I am really low on funds and I need to make rent. And I was wondering, when can you sell my short story collection? And she said, well, we can't start your author career with the short story collection. That would be another failure. I need you to write me something that I can actually sell. Write me a novel. Wow. So I um, was living in Inwood um, in a cheap apartment um, in the upper reaches of Manhattan. And I went running and because I was so torn up. And it was mm-hmm. snowing that day. 
And I remember running in Fort Tryon Park, which is this um, beautiful park with a cloisters museum. Um, and despite the fact that I was so heartbroken and confused about where I was headed, I started suddenly having this vision of a hunter lost in the woods and a tiger leapt into the scene in what became the prologue of my novel. And I came straight home. I ran straight home. (laughs) (laughs) And I sat down and I started typing away at my laptop. And what I wrote that day, I wrote the prologue in almost one sitting. And what I wrote that day pretty much didn't change throughout the five and a half years of Beast of a Little Land. No one wanted to touch it, not my agent, not my editor, not the copy editor. And what you read in the book is pretty much what I wrote that first t- day. Wow. So so you started writing it. Did, did it take a long time to write or did you start to just not get published for a while? What was that process? It took me about two and a half years to draft and maybe another two years to edit, two and a half. So it, it was about five and a half year process altogether. And um, if I could go back, I would actually advise my younger self to remember that this takes a long time. Mm. So um, I am definitely a stroke of inspiration writer. I like to um, work myself up into an inspiration frenzy and get it all down. And I love drafting. I do not love revisions. Mm. And there are other writers who are the opposite of that, who really thrive upon editing. And I think that um, there are pros and cons to each approach. Um, The pro being it's always very easy for me to draft and the um, maturation process like wine that is needed to really bring the book up to its full potential. It's always a little bit painful for me, but I am glad for the every day that I uh, worked on this book. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so tell us a little bit more about some of the characters. So the tiger is a big character, for example, and you mentioned that was your sort of first vision for the book. We explain um, what the significance of the tiger was. The tiger is the symbol of the Korean spirit in this book, and it really cannot be... Um, overstated that the tiger is the symbol of Korea. Culturally, it's been our companion for the 5,000 years that humans have continually inhabited the peninsula. Mm. It is the subject of more um, stories, legends, myths, um, and artwork than perhaps any other creature in a land that is that was practically overrun with these animals. Wow. Such amazing beasts, not only tigers, but leopards, bears, wolves, um, you know, foxes, and uh, so many different kinds of animals. And the fact that this apex predator, the biggest cat in the world, could coexist harmoniously with humans for such a long time in Korean Peninsula means that our ancestors had such a connection to nature and a reverence for nature that really forms the basis of Korean culture. And their disappearance um, during the colonial period is felt with such grief even today. So I wanted to show um, that loss of innocence um, as well as a vestige of hope 
because um, I think there are people who still hope that the tiger will, will return, mm-hmm. and it still continues um, to survive in uh, Russian Far East and parts of China. Oh, really? Okay, but it's extinct in the Cor- Korean Peninsula. The Korean okay. Yes. Wow, that's so interesting. I, yeah, I didn't realize it was still in those other parts of the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, Sarah, this wasn't your question, but I I always love talking about um, my conservation work mm-hmm. with the Phoenix Fund, which is a nonprofit based in Vladivostok, Russia. A portion of my author proceeds from every sale of the book worldwide, and it is being published in many countries, will benefit the Phoenix Fund. And I am learning a lot about what they do, how they are preserving both the Siberian tiger and the Amur leopard. The Siberian tiger, there are about 500 individuals remaining in the wild. And the Amur leopard is the most endangered big cat in the world at just about 110 individuals remaining in the wild today. And I am learning a lot because um, one thing that I want to stress is if you have a cause that you believe in, I would strongly encourage everyone to really support that cause over a long period of time. And that is what matters instead of scattering your efforts across many causes and thinking too global. If you can localize your efforts and really sustain that effort, that will um, have an impact. Mm-hmm. So um, they are seeing the numbers rise, and I hope to continue to support them throughout my career. That's really cool. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I was so fascinated by all of the different characters and your use of class in the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you were thinking about class in, in Korea during that time? Sure. Um, Korea, uh, it was very um divided by class throughout most of its history. And you will see that there were people of the lowest classes that are in the book, such as um, Jade, who grows up to become a courtesan, and Jung-ho, who is her lifelong friend, who um, comes from a very impoverished peasant background and uh, a street boy, and then grows up to um, be involved in the revolutionary movement. And then we also see bourgeois people who grew up with um, a lot of money, the landed gentry who were educated in places like Europe, America, and Japan. And um, we also see the gentry who are divided into um, this one group that doesn't care about the independence or justice and continues to profit. And another type of gentry who really... Um, sacrifice um, their privilege in order to do what's right for everybody. And that idea um, was really appealing to me. I think um, because I grew up in that culture that stresses, um, you know, in French they call it noblesse oblige, and that's not always a positively understood term. Um, But noblesse oblige means the nobility obliges um, with a sense of duty. In Korean culture, we have that same thing. It's a Confucian mindset, and it's actually a very positive thing. It means that if you grow up with privilege, um, then you must give back. So we had leaders who were actually selling all of their their land and giving away their um, money because in in that particular point in history when they hadn't discovered that communi- communism had all these ill effects in reality, they really believed it in an idealistic way. Mm-hmm. So they were putting that into action. 
And with those leaders, there were also people from all classes, poor and middle class, who joined in efforts to um, free the country. And I thought that that was very inspiring to see how um, every part of society came together with the same goal. Yeah, and I really appreciated that part that you didn't separate the classes and you told like one story and then another story and they were all very separate but existing in the same place. They were the characters interacted and they had to rely on each other at different times for a variety of different needs depending on what was going on in their lives at the time and what was going on with the revolution, etc. And I just found that really fascinating. It was really beautifully written. Thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about this cover. It's beautiful. It's very colorful. There's a tiger, a deer. Um, Did you work with an artist or did you have an idea in mind of what you wanted? So a lot of debut authors defer to the publisher's opinion on the jacket. And because I studied art history, one, and two, because I was very adamant that the cover reflect Korean aesthetics and Mm -hmm. history, I was very involved in it. So... um, the first round of designs came in and I said, these are not it. And I pulled up this image on the right, which is actually 10 longevitous creatures screen that's housed in the National Palace Museum of Korea. Oh, wow. I pulled up that image and I said something like that. And um, they said, okay, but we we really also want to feature the tiger. And so they had... um, an American illustrator actually draw up that tiger based on Korean minhwa or folk paintings because um, the actual folk paintings were really hard to get high resolution for a cover like this. So they juxtaposed the two and put those two together and I feel that it really represents the Korean aesthetic. If you notice the tiger, it's shaped like an S. It's a very dynamic composition. It's going diagonally down towards the bottom right, but its head is turned up towards the left. And even its tail is making this beautiful question mark shape. And that sort of asymmetry dynamism is very representative of Korean culture and thought. Mm. So um, I was super thrilled about how this became the jacket. That's great. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. I was born in Incheon, Korea, and my family moved to Portland, Oregon at age nine. Um, I had a rather difficult um, upbringing there. Our, our family was well off in Korea, but then when we immigrated and the Korean economic crisis of 97 happened, mm-hmm. my dad lost his job and we grew up um, experiencing difficulty. By some luck, I got admitted to Princeton University, which was a life-changing thing for me because otherwise I might not have gone to college. We couldn't afford it. Um, After college, I moved to New York, and I somehow ended up working for a New York publisher. And um, that's when I started to feel as though I could perhaps be a writer um, and um, toyed with that thought. And... um, after I quit publishing, I actually sat down and started writing more seriously. And then here we are. That's amazing. That's so cool. And do you teach writing as as well, or do you mostly write? So um, I am a freelance teacher in the sense that if um, conferences ask me or a college asks me, I've taught at Arizona State, I've taught at um, a few different places, and uh I actually love teaching. I think that there are two things that I'm good at. One is teaching and one is writing. 
And um, my mom was a lifelong teacher. It probably oh, runs in my blood. But what I most appreciate about being able to teach is I consider myself a nature writer. So my mission for uh, as a writer is actually to use my talent to save nature and reduce animal suffering. So most recently, I taught a class at a, a Willamette Writers Conference in Portland, Oregon, um, and the subject was environmental fiction. And I had a lot of environmentalists slash artist advocates who attended class and um, were inspired to um you know, use fiction writing to speak up for the earth, and I find that incredibly rewarding. That's really cool. Do you um do you enjoy the process of working with students and working with other writers? I do. Having said that, it's both um, the solitary work that really feeds me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the solitary time is really necessary for any writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think of it as is the this book, for example, is the result of everything that I have learned about life, everything that I felt about life until that point funneled in there. Mm-hmm. And in order for you to have that much um, uh, realizations, mm-hmm. resonances about life, you have to experience it and digest it on your own. It, it doesn't, it, you can't let it, distill itself when you're always meeting other people. Uh, the meeting other people part is important because that is also the life experience you need to reflect on. But I do um, need to reflect on it quietly by myself sometimes. It goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, are you working on your next book yet? Yes, I am. Um, currently working on a next novel, which is not going to be historical or related to Korea, but just as something that I am just as passionate about. Uh, I have been a lifelong dancer. I actually consider myself more of an artist than a writer. Like wow. I consider myself an artist first and then writer second, because um, as you can see from my art history background, I've always been interested in all the arts, and I actually um, get a lot of inspiration from different mediums as opposed to other books. Mm. Very rarely do I read a book and think I want to write a book just like that. Mm -hmm. But I will listen to a piece of music or see a dance performance and think that is what I want to capture in the literary form. Mm. So I am writing a a dance novel about um, a Russian ballerina. And uh, it's, to me, in in short, if this uh, Beast of a Little Lamb was an epic novel of love, war, and redemption, the second one will be um, a story of love between the artist and her art. Mm. So I think a lot about my relationship with my art. <laughs> That's great. Do you still dance? I do, just for fun. Mm. Um, obviously not as a professional, but I think that... Um, that practice is actually really important for me to um, keep striving. I think dance is a much more disciplined medium than writing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of writers don't write eight hours a day, which professional dancers do for Mm -hmm. six days a week um, for many, many years, as long as they're on stage. And I'm always inspired to push myself in the same way. Yeah, that's really cool. What is your um, writing schedule? Do you stick to a strict schedule or do you? Uh, I don't have a strict schedule. And um, I think my only kind of ritual is that if I get into a slump, um, if I have been away from my writing due to festivals or other event appearances usually, and I find it hard to come back to where I was before, um, 
there are tricks. <laughs> I'm a big fan of chocolate. Usually, I bribe myself into <laughs> sitting down with chocolate, or a glass of cocktail does the trick very nicely. But once you get yourself going, um, you don't have to eat chocolate or drink cocktails every time you write. I think that would quickly become unsustainable. <laughs> but I do have to reel myself back in and then get into that state of inspiration. And then after that, it, the story just flows and it, it writes itself. Yeah. That's great. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the Jade. Jade was one of the main characters and the role of her work. It's, she was called a courtesan. Is that mm-hmm. right? Courtesan? In Korean, that would be called Kiseng. And I wanted to write a woman character who had uh, who had independence financially as well as personally, professionally, um, who was an artist. And the courtesan was all those things at a time when women were given pretty much the only choice of being a mother mm-hmm. and a wife. So um, I love the fact that she could um, carve her own destiny with the role of the courtesan. And I knew going in that uh, choosing a courtesan as my main female protagonist might um, have some negative side effects because... If you write Asian historical fiction and have courtesan woman characters, there tends to be a kind of biased like a view that this is a lascivious book. This is somehow um, very unctuous, you know, oriental concubine fantasy, which I was very firm that that was not the vision of the book that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in reviews, I, I had this compared a lot to the Russian greats, which um, have always been my source of biggest inspiration. I wasn't basing this off of a um, harem drama. But um, in reality, though, um, a lot of Western novels canonical Western novels like um, Manon Lescaux or, um, you know, the opera, um, Verdi opera, uh, La Traviata, which is also the Lady of Camellias, all these great Western works of opera, ballet, and literature, they feature the Western courtesan but are not considered lewd or lascivious works, whereas if you feature an Asian courtesan, it suddenly becomes something less than high literature. So Mm. I was very wary of that. But um, I think that I successfully portrayed them as women of independence and a great artistic merit as opposed to people who... Um, were making their money in a seedy way. There's actually very little of sex trade happening there. And it's because sex trade really wasn't their main job. Their main job was as performers and artists. Yeah, I thought that you really did a great job of normalizing what they did. And as you said, it was a way to survive and to be independent. And it was not seen as negative. You did a really good job of not pretending portraying it as a negative part of society in the book, which mm-hmm. was really fascinating. And uh, the courtesans actually did play a huge role historically in mm-hmm. saving the country at various points, not just during the colonial period, but even going back to medieval times. There are stories of such brave courtesans who displayed great courage against um, enemy generals like Judith and Holofernes, you know. And um, they also played a very active role during the colonial period, collecting funds and being active in marches. So that 
that's all taken from history. And I was really captivated by these women who had these dual roles in society as, on one hand, icons and first celebrities, and on the other hand, as um, uh, lower class people. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that they, despite um, some uh, negative connotations negative standing in society they still wanted to contribute to society yeah they were very active in selling their jewels to fund the they were funding the revolution side right yeah yeah yeah. and that was so fascinating to just see their like both active and financial um sacrifices yes they were making yes so that's neat that that was a part of a lot of history i did not realize that so that was cool um, so we talk a little bit about language, your background with language, speaking multiple languages and how that feeds into the way that you think about words and writing. I am fluent in reading, writing and speaking Korean. And without my fluency in the Korean language, I don't think this book could have been written, mm. despite the fact that it was written in English. That's because language informs your values and your values inform your writing. Mm. This book is an extremely unironic look at all the all the things that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for. Um, it takes things like love and courage and friendship very seriously, mm-hmm. and that sincerity could not have been possible without the Korean language. My favorite mm-hmm. word in the Korean language, which is chongdo, and it means the righteous way. Mm. Um, it, it means that there is a right way to do everything. It's really about integrity. So when I think about the Korean language, I think integrity. Mm. And it's also a, an extremely textured language, rich in automatopoeia. Um, and it's very warm-hearted because of that you know, rich texture that it has. And it's also very relational because um, it's hierarchical. There are different forms of speech for different relationships between man and woman, man and man, woman and woman, and between even husband and wife, there's different forms of speech. You probably, in order to be fluent, you probably naturally subconsciously speak 20 different forms of speeches because you have to just switch it on and off. Mm. Whereas English is super logical. Um, It's the international language of science. It lends itself much better to longer and more lyrical sentences because it is so orderly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just worked on reviewing my Korean translation and the sentences are chopped up more because in Korean, it would just be impractical to have such long sentences. Mm And English, because it's so logical, it gave me the ability to construct beautiful, ornate garlands of sentences, which I love, and that suits my sensibility. So um, these different languages each time open a portal to my personality that I hadn't experienced before. Same thing with French. I am much less fluent in French than English or Korean, but French also gives me that sense of romance that is um, probably not as much found in Korean and English. So um, I love channeling everything that I uh, that I discover with each language into everything that I write. That's really cool. So, um, so you're learning? Are you still learning French now? Oh uh, yes, and I actually lived in France for three months in 2019. Um, despite the fact that I studied French in college, I think I did more learning just living there in three months. Right. 
And um, it was actually a very special time. I had just burned out a living in New York because I was writing this book, mm. actually, um, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. Wow. for about three years. That's intense. <laughs> it, it was very intense. And I was getting sick a lot because of that. Sure. And I decided to move out of New York and um, go to France for three months because I really wanted to just finally learn French and say that I learned it. And when I was there, um, not only did I absorb the language, but I was allowing myself to pursue my joy for the first time in my life. And doors opened for me in my literary career that hadn't opened to me when I was driving myself to the ground working in New York. So it was a revelation that you not only have to just work hard, you also have to um, listen to yourself and feed your entire being. You're not just a worker. You're an entire human being. So true. And so you're, are you in New York now? You're based in New York? Uh, no. So oh. after I after I went to France, I thought about pursuing a visa there, but it's very hard. Um, France is not very open to immigration of any kind. Mm -hmm. So I moved back to Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, and that's where I am based now. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Well, um, tell us where where people can find you and your book, website, social media. If you want to find out more about the book and other events, please visit www.juheikim.com. That's J-U-H-E-A-K-I-M dot com. And I'm also on Instagram at juhei underscore rights. Well, thank you, Juhei. Thanks so much for being here. We're so glad that you're in Mississippi at the book festival this year. Thank you. Thank you for writing this incredible book, too. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Sarah. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. 